Hey everybody, welcome back to The Collective. We have another fantastic show for you planned out today. Very excited. We got Sarah returning once again. I think this is what, three, four, five times you've been on now? I could not tell you. Four. Four, I think. Maybe Maybe five. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, awesome to have you back on here. Always good to have you on. This is going to be awesome. Now, while I'm excited, y'all should be too. Like the show, subscribe to the channel, hit the notification bell, do all that good stuff, get your emails whenever we go live, which is, of course, every day. Well, it will be for another eight days, and then we're going to be switching it up a little bit. But uh, today we're going to be talking about fears and phobias. But before we get into that, I do want to remind everybody, if there are any thoughts, questions, comments, anything at all, by all means, put them up in the comment section, and we will engage them directly, kind of like this one. John Minari, Morning Team TC, and Distinguished Guests. I like it. Vanessa's in. Good day, everyone. And that guy. Good morning, team. <laughs> that guy, I tell you. Um, now, before we get too far into anything, Sarah, you want to give us a quick little hitter, 10, 15 seconds, who are you, where you come from, all that good stuff, and then we'll carry on. Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. Um, I'm Sarah. I'm down in Dallas, Texas. Um, I do a little bit of everything. I coach. I work in medical devices right now. And I just love to live life. That's really all it is. I like it. So um, today we're talking fears and phobias. And the reason I picked this one was the clip that I pulled from you, Sean, a couple days ago, where you were talking about, um, I just love the way you said this when you said fear inoculation, just jump out of a bunch of planes until you're not scared of heights anymore. And you're like, thanks, tried that, didn't work, but awesome. <laughs> Great pro tip. And it made me think about this in terms of, there's lots of people that have phobic reactions to certain things that uh, people without phobias don't understand. So I figured we could dive into that and talk about it a little bit, and then we'll go from there. So what is a phobia? Why is it different from fear? That's the big question. A phobia is a type of anxiety disorder that can cause an individual to experience extreme irrational fear of a specific object, situation, or activity. It's an it is an excessive or and irrational fear reaction that can be so overwhelming that a person may go to great lengths to avoid the source of the fear. One response to a phobia can be a panic attack, which is a sudden intense fear that lasts for several minutes. Now, phobias are usually connected to something specific and can cause a deep sense of dread or panic when encountering the source of the fear. Treatment options for phobias include therapy, medication, and exposure, that kind of stuff. But let's talk about it. What are you guys' first thoughts, Sarah? Fears and phobias, what are you thinking? Well, I feel really grateful that I've not personally ever experienced a phobia. Um, I think that would be really awful to not feel like I had control over a reaction to a certain stimulus. You know, and yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's odd. Let me tell you that. Sean, thoughts on this? Well, I've said it before that I do have a phobia of heights, a fear of heights, and, and it's an irrational fear. It doesn't make any sense. I've done a boatload of fear things, or, or sorry, height things. But um, for some reason, it's just all up in my peanut that I Sean does not like heights. So if I get up on a, a, the top of a ladder, like, I feel it. I don't like it. I don't like being on the top of a ladder. But the higher I go, doesn't matter if I go up on a mountain, like if I'm up on in the mountains on my mountain bike and I'll ride close to the edge of something, I can do it. No problem. But the moment that I stop and kind of look down over the edge, it's a problem. It it messes with my head. So even though I can ride on the edge of something, trust in my abilities, my skills, all of that good stuff, I'm okay. Okay. But if I stop and again, look over the edge, the fear of heights in me is extremely unhappy. Now, put me into an airplane or a helicopter or on top of a building or in an elevator shaft, doesn't matter what it is. As soon as there's exposure to a fall or exposure to heights or just the feeling that uh, I'm, I'm at height and exposed to even if I'm all rigged in, fully rigged in, if I'm exposed to looking down into a height scenario, my head is not happy. Now, what happens in my head? Well, um, it, it never says, oh, no, you're not going to jump. It never says that because I know that I've got to jump and I'm talking about skydiving or 
or military free fall parachuting or, you know, rappelling down something. If, if I know I've got to do that, I'm going to do it. I know I will because I always have. But there's a part of my brain that is extremely unhappy, so much so that it is irrationally unhappy. It, it irrationally doesn't want to be there. I'm, I'm a few inches off the edge of a, a tall building. There's no way I'm going to fall off the edge of the building. And it doesn't matter anyway, because I'm hooked into something. But my brain, for whatever reason, thinks that if I take one inch closer to that step, one inch closer to the edge of that building, it creates more fear. And I don't know why. It, it's a phobia. It is an, an irrational fear of heights that I have and always have had for a long time and no amount of exposure inoculation changes that. It is an irrational fear that I've had for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this. She has a, uh, uh, she's phobic of needles and it is a, uh, when we first started dating, she told me she had a fear of needles and I was like, okay, cool. I know lots of people with fear with uh, that are scared of needles. No big deal. And we you know we'll work it into the process. And but the thing that I noticed over time was the fact that her reaction never changed. So like we could talk about it, and she would get nervous. But every time we did it, didn't matter the situation, didn't matter the lead-in, it was the same reaction. And so when she got uh, when she got pregnant, and she had to go get blood drawn, and had to get all the shots, and get the epidural, and all these things, right? It the reaction shocked me how fearful she was and how much of a physical reaction it was. And I, her and I were chatting about it yesterday. And, um, she said that the thing that she notices the most is that if you have a phobic reaction, that fear never changes. doesn't matter how many times you do it. It's still there. Um, similar to when, you know, sitting up at heights, that reaction is probably the same as the last reaction, as the last reaction, as the last reaction, duh, 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 and, and it's just extreme and kind of out, <laughs> out of nowhere. Is there any thoughts on this at all? I think that's really interesting that, you know, no matter, you know, in Sean, when you were explaining it, no matter whether you are harnessed in or in a place of safety, like you still have that, that physiological reaction to that stimulus. But if you're riding the mountain bike and you're engaged, then you know it's there, but you respond less to it, which is, which is really interesting to me. But I, I also think it's really admirable and, and a good lesson for a lot of people that to, to just keep doing things, even though you, you have that phobic reaction, right? W within reason, right? That it might not be best for everybody, but you're able to commit yourself to doing these things and not live in fear and limit yourself from these activities based off of your phobia. That's a great point, Sean. Yeah, I've, I've thought about it as well, of course, lots. And uh, you you raised the good point, Sarah, that on a mountain bike, I'll feel it less than I am when uh, perhaps I'm harnessed in on the edge of a building. <clears throat> now, I think the difference in my head, and, and it's all in my head, of course, you know, the, the fact remains that I don't have to be scared of heights, but I am, and that, that fear is in my head. And so... When I'm on a bike, my head tells me that I'm somewhat in control. But when I'm on the edge of a building, the only freaking reason I'm on the edge of the building is because someone told me I have to be there. <sighs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be there. There's no freaking way I'd be there. Just no way. And so there's, there's no way I'd be there. And there's no way I'd be in the harness. And there's no way I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, I've got to go off the edge of this thing. Those are all things that have kind of been not forced on me, but I'm obligated to do. So on a mountain bike, I'm making choices. I'm making decisions on my line. I'm how close do I want to get to the edge? Whoa, that's too far. That's, that's too steep. I can edge back and I can keep riding. So I am in a con control position at that point. Based on all my skills, I feel comfortable enough in the moment. But if I get too close again, then again, the phobia kicks in. So I can probably get closer to the edge there than I can when I'm harnessed in doing something that I don't want to do told to me to do by someone that just doesn't understand what's going on in my head. So there's a bit of a difference there for sure. But the phobia 
is still the phobia. I have a question on that then. This is this is going to be interesting. We're going to dive into Sean's head today. I have a feeling about this one. <laughs> yeah. So as you said, a lot of these things you were told that you were needed to, you were required to do this, right? Get up on the edge of the building, rappel off this side, do all the things, jump out of the plane, all that stuff. But you've been to Pegasus Jump now twice. That was a fully voluntary movement. Now, you didn't have to jump, but you did on multiple occasions. So I'm wondering what the feelings were or if they were any different choosing to do that versus um, being told to. What do you think? Nope, they were the same. The The fear was still there, but the, the at Operation Pegasus Jump, I'm voluntarily driving to Operation Pegasus Jump, voluntarily jumping out of the plane of my own volition and all of that good stuff. However, there is an element of, I'm obligated to do it because I'm driving to something that I know I'm going to go do. But as soon as I get there, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. I'm going to jump. First of all, first year I had both of my boys. Second year I had uh, one of our boys out there. So I'm, there's no way I'm not going to jump because my sons are there. I mean, that, that'd be ridiculous. I'm asking them to jump, but I'm not going to jump. What the heck? What the heck? So that's not going to happen. And then I've got all my brohemos that are there all of the pressure for so for sure i'm going to jump for the team i mean the team is always going to make me go bigger better faster stronger so there's that but for sure i could have ducked dodged and dived all of those jumps and and not got up in a plane but i wanted to because i wanted to check it out because i wanted to see oh yeah let's 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 face that phobia again and see what's up and for sure, it was still there. But for sure, I still jumped out of the plane. Uh, but the difference between being told to go do something and volunteering to do something, there is a bit of a difference in my head, for sure. Was was the fear at heights worse or the same or less? I'd say it was about the same. And so uh, I didn't have like sewing machine legs, you know, like I, I wasn't all shaky and all. I wasn't all wigged out up there in the plane. I probably looked pretty calm uh, as I typically try to portray. Uh, I got this. I got this. Uh, so that's kind of the vibe I was putting off. But in my head, I was unhappy uh, with the fact that I was about to leave that perfectly good airplane. And and so, there again, there's never been a time when I haven't gone. Uh, but uh, there's been times when I've thought, oh, boy, I'm not sure I want to do this. So. Interesting. Sarah, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm kind of curious. So if, because Operation Pegasus Jump, is it's a fun, is a fundraiser? Or oh, is it? So it's a, uh, it's set up by our, our buddy Tim, who um, it's a kind of like a retreat, kind of sort of like you, you bring in vets in to come jump out of planes. At oh, cool. Okay. Kind of reduce, reduce it, it's a big gathering, you know, yeah. a couple hundred people kind of thing that uh, jump out of planes uh, to just kind of bro hemo out to, to some degree. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So I, I guess my, my question then is, let, let's say you had signed up to do this, but none of the extra influence was there. Would you still jump? Mm, good question. Yeah, that is a good question. I don't know because I've never been in that situation before. I don't like randomly throw on parachutes or mountaineering gear and, and hike off to go do things all by myself to test my phobias. <clears throat> I, I mean, I do test my phobias for sure. Like I do put myself in circumstances where uh, I'm at height. I mean, when we were traveling through the last seven weeks through Asia, um, there was moments where we're up on heights, you know, on the edge of mountains up in freaking super tall buildings and all of that good stuff. And so, um, you know, climbing up some of these temples or these shrines, the, you know, the stairs are super high angle and you get to, you know, 400 steps later and you look down and, and you just covered a fair bit of distance and, and the fall has consequences and there's exposure, exposure to height. And so uh, there are times uh, even on vacation where I was thinking like, oh, this is, this is uh, giving me that hanky feeling, uh, but you know I'm I'm kind of used to it, and it's never stopped me from doing something. You just I just have to get right with the idea that uh, I'm just going to keep on doing what I do, 
and have that uncomfortable moment that I just keep on pushing through. So no, irrespective of what the level of fear is, that's just never stopped me. It's just a matter of um, figuring out a way to keep moving through the fear. And, and I think it's an interesting point. Like uh, Chance, you said your wife uh, had an irrational fear of needles. Uh, on the teams or on in tier one, uh, one of the guys that I work very closely with, he he was the same with needles, except that um, you know, and, and we'd have to get a few needles to for various reasons uh, in the unit, and so um, you know, the moment that a needle came out, like he'd pass out, like straight up pass out, like he'd have to sit on the bed. Uh, in in the in an operating room or whatever in a surgical space, sit on a bed, and we kind of like stand next to him because like as soon as the needle came towards him, whew, that'd be him passing out. So we just kind of guide him to the bed. He'd get his needles, wake up. Uh, how was that? Yeah, you got him. And so uh, I mean, this guy was like, I mean, hang on a sec. He's freaking tier one, man. Like he's tough as a coffin nail. And so. But a needle just made him pass out as a physiological reaction. Uh, so um, as, did that ever stop him in anything else? Never. But just the sight of a needle coming at him was enough to make him freaking black out. And so um, the physiological response can be so autonomously strong that it has repercussions or it has consequences that you black out. Well, I've never blacked out at heights, but like I felt the strain of the moment and I get a grip on the moment. I've never blacked out. I've never sweated so hard that I've slipped off the mountain. So it's, uh, I, I do have responses, but they're never consequential enough that they've stopped me from doing a quote unquote, my job. Yeah. I, I do think that's an important point. And there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of, I don't know what misinformation on this, but I don't, I don't know if people really understand that there are, it's, it's a, it's the freaking word for it. Like a spectrum. <laughs> a spectrum. Thank you. It is a spectrum, right? So you can have a phobic reaction um, that is totally irrational and make no sense. That is mild, right? Like you can just, it's always there and you can kind of overcome it and work through it. And you can go to the extremes of, you know, having a kryptonite basically where <laughs> you see a needle and you pass out. It is a, uh, it was quite surprising. I had to hold my wife down the first time they drew blood, like physically hold her down on the table and make sure she could not see the needle at all. And, uh, she, it was enlightening to say the least <laughs> from like having never seen that before and having no experience with phobias. I, I did not expect that kind of reaction, but it, uh, it kicked off. It was crazy. Uh, I got a question here, a comment question first off. So that guy said, I have a fear of needles for some reason. I have no idea why. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the key, right? A lot of these, usually you can stem a fear back to something, but phobias seem to be just there. I wonder if that would be something to go into. But the question I have here from Daniel says, I'm presuming whenever you obtain an ability to overcome a fear slash phobia, that success uh, becomes wired into your subconscious where when it comes up again, it resurfaces, which will allow you to do it once again. So this is a good question, Sean. Do you think that uh, you've said many times that the fear was the same, but exposing yourself to those, um, all of the repetitions of jumping out of planes and doing all these things, did that allow you to do the action easier, even though the fear was still the same? So uh, fear inoculation, we'll use that term as the example. Um, so it does work to some degree for me. But it's not like a freaking Harry Potter magic wand that with one wave, it wipes away all of the uh, phobia. It just doesn't. Uh, it, again, it doesn't for me. And so, like, I had a irrational fear of heights uh, that I noticed in, like, basic training when I was on the rappel tower. And it's not that I had the sewing machine legs, but I was like, whoa, this is, like, freaking me out. And so that was my first indication that I wasn't good with heights. And so um, as it continued along, you know, of course, I'm on my basic para course, my, my basic parachutist course, and I'm not liking it. And I'm number one in the door for the first jump on the course, because apparently I'm top candidate. 
And so that's totally freaking me out because it's my first time ever jumping out of a plane. I could see the ground whistling by and I had all the pressure of all the troops behind me thinking that, man, if I don't jump, I'm going to screw over the team. So I had that pressure. That's probably what got me out of the door. Who knows? Um, but I, I jumped out and I've jumped out ever since I've never not jumped. So the jumping within the basic parachutist course, it got a bit easier because the, the unknown became the known. But the known is then a problem because in my head, I now know what I'm going to have to face the next jump. So it's kind of helpful, but kind of not initially. But then I got on the Skyhawks, a parachute demonstration team. And, um, and I did a boatload of jumps, hundreds of jumps. And so every jump was a bit easier until I was pretty casually, you know, doing backflips out the back of a CC-130 and doing one of these and, and being all large and in charge in the air. And so um, that did sort of ease the fear to some degree, only because it made the abnormal in my head somewhat normalized. And so I could flippity-flop off the back of the Herc easier, but every time that I knew I was going to jump, I still felt the that hinky feeling, the kind of tingles on the back of my neck uh, to let me know that I was about to do something fearful. And so um, it, it has never gone away for me. It has got easier for me, certainly when I was doing more of it, but again, back to Operation Pegasus Jump, which meant that I hadn't jumped out of a perfectly good plane in a couple of decades. That It wasn't like that was my first jump. I wasn't feeling that sort of uh, phobia. But what I was feeling was way more than when I was in the Skyhawks, where I was doing a lot of it. And so uh, can it be easier with exposure? Probably, maybe, for someone out there. Was it for me? Probably, maybe to some degree, but it was not so tangible that I would think, oh yeah, I've just got to go jump another hundred times and I'm going to be almost back to a zero out of 10 feeling of fear. That's just never been the case for me. I've always felt it and uh, it's it's diminished to some degree, but not so significantly that uh, I can consider it as a shining example of success that's how you get rid of phobias kids just do it a lot so i've never said that to anyone that uh, fear inoculation is like a, a magic trick that uh, works perfectly i've recommended it to people to give it a try to see how it works for them but it's not something that has worked for me yeah exposure therapy is a that's a very that's a specific way of therapy, right? So that's, that's, I wouldn't recommend people taking on that on by themselves. Uh, Sarah, you got any thoughts or questions at all? No, yeah, I, I definitely agree with Sean because I'm in the military. We do a lot of, you know, like fear inoculation um, as part of our training, especially to make the unknown known so that we can have more controlled reactions. Um, but what I think is interesting and I've really not thought about it until we were having this conversation is, so much of that is actions based, you know, the fear of something that happens with with actions or a scenario where um, we're supposed to action something and we can expect someone to action something against us. Um, but I don't know that it's the same when I think about, you know, fear responses to things that are more like concept based. That's an interesting lane to go down. Sean, you got any thoughts on this? Well, the first thing that comes in my head is, as Sarah said, we are all kind of exposed to a whole pile of uh, potential fears in the military and uh, sometimes actively tested for them in certain organizations or through certain processes. Um, and certainly I can say that, and I think it's pretty well known, um, generally well known, that and as part of selection for Tier 1 in Canada, uh, a boatload of phobias are tested through a bunch of processes. And so uh, when I went through my selection, I didn't know anything about selection. Nobody did because, of course, we were the originals. So uh, nobody had gone through the selection before. So as, as I stepped into selection, like a whole pile of things are happening. And 
you're not really sure why they're happening at that point. Uh, you just kind of move through the process. You do your best. And at the end of the day, you're evaluated and maybe you make it, maybe you don't. Well, I made it. And as I completed and made it, as I look back on things, I still wasn't sure what was going on during the entire process. Then I had the privilege of uh, being involved in running selections. Um, and so I got to see it through the eyes of a directing staff. And I got to better understand what each serial represented, what was the purpose of each serial. Now, I'm not going to say that I was given the, um, the secret code book that if I read it once, I fully understood what uh, the selection process um, creates or, or what the magical ingredients are for an operator, because I'm not sure anyone ever fully understands that, because it's, it's quite a complex process. But suffice to say, as a directing staff watching other people go through the process, you could <clears throat> you could see all of their phobias being tested in the moments. And a lot of phobias are tested specifically part of the process to be tested against. Let's use one, uh, claustrophobia, tested. Fear of heights, tested. Fear of name it, tested. And so it's not like, you have to crawl through a nest of spiders or snakes or anything like that, like it's some sort of Indiana Jones process. But pretty much all of the phobias are tested, the major ones for sure. And so um, the interesting thing about that is when you look at a guy, and, and I say guy because I've only ever seen guys go through the selection process. When you look at a guy, he looks like from the exterior that he's squared away, this is going to be easy. This next serial is going to be really easy. Shouldn't be a problem. Gets into the situation. And I've, I've seen it range from full tilt, screaming panic, back down all the way to let me out of here, back down all the way through to struggling, back down through all the way to that was difficult for him, back down all the way through to non-factor. So you can look at someone in the eyes and think, I think they've got this. And then 30 seconds later, it's not that they've gone full lunatic, but it's a moment where obviously this is a phobia that they weren't aware of. And this is a deal breaker right now. They'll tap out right in the moment because it's that bad. And so up until that point, they didn't know. And obviously we didn't know. And so everyone finds out in the moment what the phobia is because the phobias are tested to a degree where you're exposed to yourself. That's a lot of selection is you being exposed to you and you finding out who you are in the moment and you're observed while you're learning these things. And so I, I don't ever dive too deeply into selection as part of the conversation, nor will I ever. Uh, but I'll just say that it's it's an exposure system as much as it is a testing system. And so these these phobias do come up during the process of selection. And sometimes all parties are surprised and no no one more surprised than the individual who's in the moment in the phobia, realizing that it's happening to them. And they had no expectation of that ever popping off as hard as it did. I think that goes into kind of what Sarah was just saying talk in terms of like stress inoculation, right? Like you wouldn't know if you'd never been placed into a situation like that. At what point would you learn that you have claustrophobia? If you've never been in a tight space before, that wouldn't seem like something that you would even uh, come up on your mind. But that is a... Uh, that's an interesting point about selection. I didn't even, uh, hadn't quite grasped that thought, that process yet. Sarah, you got any thoughts on that? No, I just, I don't know. It's interesting to think about just all the different ways the military, um, you know, chooses people for different jobs and the processes that have proven to be successful um, to get people to do the hard things. You know, it's like you almost, for, for lack of a better term, you, you, I mean, you literally do that. You handpick people who can 
fear adapt and manage themselves in these very hard situations. But I, I don't know, it's just a really, it's a really interesting concept um, from, from a bigger perspective of, I'm sorry, I've had a lot of Darwin on my mind lately, so. <laughs> all good. Went the, down a uh, rabbit hole there. Yeah, no, it's all good. The, uh, the, actually, it's an interesting point too, because what that's trying to do through the training system is like almost spark those, uh, those points. And I mean, not to the degree of selection, but even, you know, basic training and you're, you're being taught things, but you're constantly being put under stress. And it's the observation of that stress that determines whether or not that person is successful or not. Right. Because if I see somebody falling apart when they're, you know, handling explosives, I'm going to start adding stress to see how far we can go, right? Like to see how, how, uh, how much of a reaction we're going to get that. And I think it, uh, you know, you're kind of pushing on that instinctual wall of like the fight, flight, freeze response of just like, let's see how far we can push this. We can see if we can get this person to uh, see what the reaction is going to be to more stress in this, in this environment. Sean, you got any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's based on what Sarah just said uh, with Darwin, their Darwinian model. I like it. I, I think that it is uh, applicable against the military or within the military or to the military that um, right from the get-go, right from basic training, you're going through a Darwinian process where, and, and I'll use casual terms now, I'm not going to go all Darwinian, but uh, you know, the cream rises to the top through the basic training process and things settle down all the way to the bottom and what's at the bottom and what's at the top. Well, at the top, we'll call it the top candidate. And at the bottom is the individual who barely scraped by, and they have already started to be judged as a strong term, but they've already started to be identified as a potential weak link. And that's through basic training. And so that's something that a person will carry with them throughout their military career, where it's not that they'll be side-eyed by everyone, but they'll be observed. Like if you're, if you're, last in the pecking order it's for a reason it's because either you had some incompetence with weapons handling or incompetence with patrolling or incompetence with communication or navigation or working as a team or working independently or following orders or giving orders or all of the things and that's just basic training if you've been letting things slide or you haven't been meeting high standards, or you've just been barely scraping past the minimum standard. And some of those minimum standards you barely met or were just under, but somehow some other scores managed to rise you just to a pass, a bare minimum pass. At that point, the Darwinian process is in play. The herd, your basic training course, is observing you moment to moment to see Maybe not what you're going to screw up, but what they're going to have to fix or what extra weight they're going to have to bear or how they're going to have to bring you back into the herd from time to time. And so that's a resource cost to the herd that we can all pretend that none of this happens, but it does happen even within basic training that the herd will observe strong and weak and will act as a unit to incorporate those things so that the herd stays integral as a whole. And so um, if whether you're the top of the pack or the bottom of the pack is unimportant, what is important as a unit or as a small organism, it will do what it needs to do to stay integral and protect itself and move forward efficiently and effectively through a process called basic training. But the more you move up through the rank so the more you move through your career the more advanced you get within a specific trajectories that darwinian process never stops it's just that we don't talk about it no one in the military talks about the darwinian herd the darwinian method the the fallouts the creams no one really talks about that stuff because it's super freaking uncomfortable and we're not supposed to talk about it because it affects morale, esprit de corps. But it's a thing. We all know it's a thing. Everyone who's served long enough 
knows it's a thing. When you're bottom of the pack and you're a concern for the organization that you're in, whether it's a four-person team or a 4,000-person team, if you're the very last in the pecking order, there's probably a few eyes on you to make sure that you show up with your boots on and you know where your weapon is. And they're probably going to be holding your hand from time to time, even though you don't know they're holding your hand. Because the unit, the organization, the organism wants the best for the organism. And so they're going to do what they have to do to make sure that everyone is in the organization, the, the organism. But maybe a person is unaware that they are the weak link and they're being moved into the organism, as it were. And so Dar the Darwinian concept, I believe, is a strong correlation to the military. And I just don't think that we talk about it enough uh, in respect to that. So how does phobia play into that? Well, if someone's got a phobia, wicked phobia, that's causing them to slowly scale up a ladder to do to go do the thing because they have a fear of heights. Well, now it's the people around that individual that has to somehow either convince or coerce or communicate or convey all the C's to help that person get up that freaking ladder faster or more confidently or more capably. Because again, back to the Darwin process of the organism, if that individual is slow crawling up the ladder, and it's bogging down or choke pointing everyone below them, the herd feels the moment. They feel the, the anxiety starts moving through the unit. If it's a small unit, you'll feel it within a 12-person a team. If someone's slow crawling and you're on timings, the choke point, now there's pressure. The pressure just doesn't like evaporate. It moves back into the organism. And so the unit's starting to get a bit twitchy, like, come on, let's go, let's go. We've got to get it. Everyone's looking at their watch, thinking about how this is negatively impacting the near future. And so the unit will find a way to manage that situation in the, in the real time, but it'll find a way to figure it out in the near future, which is during the AAR or the after action report where that conversation is going to be okay. Am I going to be the one who has to bring it up about the ladder moment? And so that has to be discussed. That has to be corrected against uh, as part of the Darwin process. The Darwin process doesn't have to have someone dying or doesn't have to have someone eaten by hyenas. What it has to have is a self-correcting process where the unit, the organism, corrects itself. And that's typically what the army does when it's working well. Yeah, that's a great point. Sarah, you got any thoughts on that? No. No? no. Nothing? <laughs> Sean's dropping Mike Slepper and said this, this whole week. It's been so hard to follow him. But uh, I, I do have a, a question on that or maybe a, more of a statement. But we're talking about the fittest, right? And not in terms of overall fitness. I'm talking about the, the you know, survival of the fittest in terms of who fits into that environment the best. Right. And I think the military is a great description of it, but it's also in the rest of the world, just not to such an extreme degree, because if I'm working in a corporate job, right. And I'm not getting my job done, it is affecting the rest of the organism and it's still affecting everybody else. There's just not that, um, base level of, <laughs> if, if this doesn't work, people die kind of deal. So there's less of a, a stress reaction to it. But do you think that, that, uh, that learning process that, um, amalgamating into the new organism. So when you join the military or you, you know, you start working for a large scale business that has its own culture, the speed in which we uh, come into that environment is correlated to the speed in which we let go of what we think we know ahead of time. Cause I saw that in basic training and uh, you know, as an instructor was the people that could just let go of you know, their past and just do what was required of them in the moment, they did better. They were able to adapt and change and in incorporate themselves faster, if that makes any sense. 
Got any uh, thoughts on that? Sarah, I'm going to come to you first. What do you think? So I, I just want to clarify, are you asking, does the the Darwinian model that Sean just elaborated on exist throughout all companies and cultures? Or are we talking more about do we do preconceived notions and the ability to just be present on and how that impacts your ability to assimilate? I would go with the, the second one there, the preconceived notions on how well we can assimilate into in a new unit, a new environment. Okay, um, sure. So I'll I'll use myself for an example, right? So when I got out of the military, I took a hard pivot and went into a job that I knew nothing about. Um, I had never worked in healthcare. I knew not one thing about what a pacemaker was or an implantable defibrillator. Um, and the only way that I would survive is if I didn't let one, my ego, and two, my past dictate how I became this new chapter of myself, right? So I had to come in completely open and just put my nose in my book and learn everything that I could in order to be successful. Um, because if I had, personally, if I had come in with like, oh, well, you know, I did a, B, C, and D. When I was in the military, I did X, Y, and Z as a coach. You know, I, you know, I bring all of this to the table. So why do I need to learn what you guys bring to the table? You know, that would have been a huge failure. Um, so I think, yes, if you, especially if you have a big transition, it's not to say that, that you discredit all of your experience because you still bring a lot to the table, but it's, you have to have an open mind and how you now apply it to a completely different setting because how it worked in one arena is not how it'll work in the other, even though the principles might be the same. Mm, I like that, Sean. Thoughts on that? Well, what I was thinking as Sarah mentioned that is that that might have been the case for Sarah, but it's not the case for everyone. And I think the difference would be, and it's not that Sarah is so unique, it's probably that she managed to establish pretty early on in that process her why why she was going to step into that new thing. And, and that why requires um, a sense of importance. So if your why is, uh, yeah, I'm bored today, I'm going to start a new career. If that's your only why, that's probably not getting to get you to the finish line. That's probably not going to let you drop your past. That's probably not going to let you keep an open mind. If your why is just, I'm bored today, I'm going to start something new called a job. Maybe I'll last till the end of the day maybe. So that Sarah probably went in with an entirely different mindset where she put enough importance into what she was about to step into and probably had a vision of how long she was going to be in it. And so she kind of committed hard, I would suspect. And if you commit hard enough, then you're able to let go of things. You're able to get right with the moment and execute against it. So before she cracked page one of the first book of the many books that she probably cracked, I guess, I suspect that she probably had established already what she was about to do and why she was about to do it, which is not the case for everyone. And so for folks who don't do that, you, they can be a half a day in, they can be half a week in and start realizing wow, I guess I'm doing something new that I hadn't really thought about and I'm not sure why I'm doing it. And by the end of the week, they've quit. Or by the end of the week, they have come to the realization that maybe they bit off more than they can chew, which is not the case if their why is focused enough or it's important enough or they've put enough pressure on themselves to not quit. And so there's many factors, as Sarah was saying that, that I was thinking that it's not that Sarah was lucky. It's just that Sarah understands how to do it well. That moment, she understood how to do it well, whether she did it instinctually or whether she'd been taught it in the military or whether she'd been raised that way or maybe she'd read a book on how to do it. But the moment that she committed on that day one, was a result of understanding how to commit to, day, to a day one. And so not everyone understands that, I feel. So it is an important distinction, I believe. Yeah. Sarah, you got any 
additional thoughts on that? Uh, I, I think that is a, a very valid point. Um, I, I will say that, uh, Sean, I feel very seen. I'm an all in type of person. Um, but I, one, I think that the why is super important. And I, I know we talk about this all the time, but if you don't understand what your why is as a human being, it makes everything else so much harder. Um, and you guys talked a lot about this this week too, but it's the concept of putting on a white belt, you know, and not being afraid to do something new and, and to start over, you know, to bring it back to fear. I think one of the biggest fears that I see with people is the fear of starting over or the fear of losing progress, you know, whether that's professionally in relationships or in hobbies. And that fear will paralyze them into a position where they're not aligned with their why or they're not aligned with their personal values, you know? And so, and now you just have a person who's living, I mean, maybe they're happy, you know, I, I don't want to judge, but they might also not feel the same fulfillment as if they didn't allow fear to limit them and to put on that white belt and to just jump into something new. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And there's a, uh, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of people that live an okay life, right? And I think this is something that our, our society kind of has led to in the fact that you can leave, you can have an okay life, right? It's not so bad that you need to change. <laughs> there's not so many, there's no saber tooth tigers running around where you're so scared you have to learn how to defend yourself. You just, you can just be and, you know, go from there. But I, I think you're right. There's a, there's a big, big thought pattern there. Sean, thoughts on this at all? Well, Sarah would understand this well. This, this, what she just spit out um, is is well understood by Sarah because she's an instructor on the BJJ mat. She's a good observer of the human condition. Her, she's a thinker. She's an intellect. So she would be processing these things on a pretty regular basis throughout the week as she um leads people on the mats to some degree and so these are these kind of things that sarah is observing or thinking are not just like casual academic thoughts that you read once in a book and you think aha that's how it all works these are what what sarah just said are is a compilation of lots of practice lots of incidents lots of experiences all stacked up into the moment that she just said what she said and so that's a distillation of her life to some degree where it it has come to the confluence moment of her being able to easily say casually say thoughtfully say what she said and understand that that's true in her world and it's true in my world what she said resonates with what i've observed as well but that this, the power of connecting experience, practical experience or observable experience versus just reading in a book, if you can combine those two things together where uh, academia supports your observed experience, it, it is a powerful thing. So reading Darwin, as Sarah said, ties into her observable experiences, which help her navigate her world and then reinforce through observable experiences that this is how she understands how fears or phobias work on a mat and on the mat you get to see fears from people who look like they shouldn't have fears or won't have fears or won't be fearful and it, that fear doesn't mean that they're freaking around uh running around the mats freaking out with their hair on fire freaking out but it means that if you're a good observer if you've lived enough experiences just on the mats, thousands and thousands of experiences, after a while, you get granularity. You can see the nuance of the moment. You can see when someone is about to react in a negative way, in a perhaps fearful way, before they know. But that takes a while to see these kind of things, feel these kind of things. And so the moment that you've got that body of work, behind you where you are able to see these moments appear before they appear well that's that's a keen eye that's a, a wise eye and that 
wisdom will allow you to consider your own phobias. But again, that doesn't mean that observing your phobias wipes away the phobia. It just gives you more granularity on yourself, just as it gives you more granularity on the world. Mm, I like that. Sarah, coming back to you, any thoughts on that? No, I, I do think it is really important, though, to reinforce that just because we expose ourselves and expose ourselves to these things, it doesn't take the phobia away or it doesn't take the fear away. We just either, in some cases, we are lucky and we get better at living with those things and managing them. And then in some cases, we just become more aware of our triggers. Both are fine. Both help us live to be better people. Um, but I just don't want the concept to be that we're just like diminishing what it means to have these very real fears or phobias. Absolutely. Now, the question I have for both of you guys as, you know, people that have taught martial arts and taught people how to go through st stressful things in all uh, this whole area, what are some of the tips that you've, or the tools that you've given to help people work through those in the moment? Because I know that the people watching and stuff like that, it's always good to have some actual tools, but what have you guys uh, seen work? Let's put it that way. When someone's having that kind of stress reaction and then what have, what have they used? What have you seen? What have you used? That kind of thing uh, to get them through that moment. Sean, I'm going to come to you first. What do you think? Well, my answer 20 years ago would have been different than it is today. So today my answer is um, I just feel the moment. I feel it out and I adjust it on a vibe level. And so that will be through um, my physical communication and my verbal communication. And so if I, if I feel that I've got to adjust it this way or adjust it that way, then I'll adjust my body language and I'll adjust my tonality and I'll adjust my velocity and I'll adjust my language so that it syncs up with how I want to adjust it to the left or to the right. So what does that even mean? Sometimes it'll be as simple as, wow, come on over here. Let's have a quick chat. Or sometimes it'll be, what the heck, bro? Come on over here right now. It depends. It depends on the situation. And so by depends, what I'm referring to is the one gajibillion times that I've had to do it and try to read it properly and try to respond properly. And sometimes I've done it really well. And sometimes I've done it less than well. But through all of those iterations, I've learned how to be able to do it quite well in the real time. And so whatever's in front of me, I feel it. And then I respond accordingly. And then as I see it unfold in front of me, I'll tweak it in real time so that the outcome that I want and they expect occurs. And so that's what I've done at lots of races with lots of athletes. In, in, the, in the millisecond, I'm adjusting their mindset, their mind. I can't make all of the injuries go away. I can't make the fatigue go away. I can't make a lot of physiological things go away. But what I can do is adjust their mind. And the mind is critical to any conversation. So the moment that I'm, the moment that they're approaching me, I'm already working on their mind with my body language and how I'm looking at them. And so as soon as they pull up in front of me, right away, I'm adjusting their mind through my first word, through my first bit of change body language. So if you've, if you've done it a lot and you've understand the outcomes a lot, if you've really, really thought about what you're doing and what it has done over a couple of decades, well, then you just keep trying to do it better. The real-timeness of adjusting someone's mind is, is not only something that I enjoy, but it's fascinating. It's like a, the best hobby ever. And so um, that's that I could dig into that for too long. So I'm just going to hold up there and see what Sarah thinks. <laughs> Roger that. Sarah, thoughts on this? Yeah, so I, I completely agree. It, it depends. It absolutely depends. Um, so for, I have spent... 99% of my coaching time in Olympic lifting, nutrition, and CrossFit. Um, and 
you have to attenuate yourself to what that athlete is showing you. And that allows me to adjust myself and my approach. Um, but the ultimate goal is I am going to adjust that talk track or that physical presence to impact their mindset. You know, and I will say the two things that I've observed um, are the limiting belief is the thought that one, they are not in control of their actions or two, they are physically not in control of their breathing. And when someone can't control their breathing, they panic. And when someone believes they aren't in control of their actions, they already set themselves up for failure with that limiting belief. So if it's in the physical arena, one thing that I I teach all of my athletes is recovery breathing. And we talk about managing breath work in the physical action. And then when it came to nutrition, it was its mindset. I I tell all of my athletes, I'm not here really to, I'll, I'll do your macros and I'll help you with your macros. But my ultimate goal with you is to change how you show up for yourself and how you view yourself and how you fuel your body to achieve your bigger goals. Absolutely. Sean, I, I see you got thoughts on this. What do you got? I do. I think it's a great approach. I think that uh, that's very much in line with what I try to do. And, uh, you know, just specifically on, on the nutrition aspect of which is one of several hundred silos that we could jump into in respect to coaching. The nutrition piece is, for me, the ultimate outcome is that that individual learns how to learn themselves, learn how to coach themselves on the subject of nutrition. And so for each person, that's a boutique path that you take them down where you remove their limitations and you bolt on uh, awesomeness, whatever that means to anyone listening right now. And so that is a journey that is different for every single athlete that I've worked with or any individual that I have this conversation with. Because they come, as we mentioned earlier, with those uh, pre-considered or pre-ordained or those pre-thoughts about how things are done, pre-habits, and those have to be modified so that they're now correct for where they want to go. And then while those things are being modified, I'm trying to introduce a new ability for them where they become self-actualized in a good way in respect to nutrition. And and that's a bit different for everyone because everyone's nutritional path is going to look a little bit different at the final outcome because not everyone needs the identical amount of macros, micros. Not everyone needs the identical type. Not everyone needs to eat spinach. And so it comes down to not only taking them down the right path, but teaching them to create their own path in the future. Mm, I like that. Now we are, <laughs> we, we could probably dive into that for quite a while, but we are running out of time. So let's get some final thoughts on fears, phobias, anything Darwinian theory, anything that we've gone over today. And, uh, and then we can shut her down for the afternoon. Sarah, you got any, anything boiling in the back of your brain there? Oh man, I, that was such a great conversation. I, I'll just reiterate, you know, fear is real and that's okay, but it's how you choose to respond and teach yourself to overcome those fears, which will help you define how you live the rest of your life. Bam. I like it. Sean, final thoughts? That was nice. Uh, I think that, um, you know, as, as we're just finishing off there talking about, you know, teach someone what the path is so that they can then understand how to create their own path in the future. That is kind of, I'd love to apply that against phobias, but I don't think it's as clean uh, a pathway for phobias as it is for how to live a better life. But I do believe that there's a way forward with phobias, but it takes a curious mind. It takes lots of um, perhaps exploration to figure out if there's a different way that you can approach your phobia. If there's a novel way for you to reconsider your phobia to engage in it and i think that that is the key engaging it you can't sit back and think about how you're going to remove your phobia you've got to actively pursue that adjustment or modification of your phobia 
and perhaps you can minimize it to the degree where it's gone. I don't know. Everyone's on different phobia levels. Uh, but uh, for me, I've tried a bunch of things and I still jump out of perfectly good airplanes and therefore things can be done irrespective of what your phobias are. But I do believe it's a lifelong pursuit to try to figure out, even if, if you just want to make it a casual hobby, how to get a grip on your phobia. But I think it should be more than a casual hobby. I think it should be get to work on defeating it. Uh, and if nothing else, you might just end up minimizing it. And that's not so bad either. Yeah. Yeah. Mitigation is, is a uh, positive bonus out of that, right? Like if, you, if you seek to do anything better and you get to do it a, le a little bit better, that's a win. In, in my books, absolutely. Um, but Sarah, John, thank you guys. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> really, it's I've been really diving into it. I, I really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Now, I don't have a lot to add to it, so I'm just going to end with continue to learn about yourself, continue to build upon that knowledge, and grow into the person you're meant to be. And you can do that with us here on The Collective. We'll see you all tomorrow. Chimo. Chimo.